Welcome to the show, everybody. <laughs> How's everybody feeling? How are you guys doing out there? How are all the therapists doing out there? I hope everybody's keeping it together. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Ari Shapiro. Who's Your Therapist is uh, a show where I interview therapists about what's going on in their lives and what's their story and who they are. And... Um, each episode, I, I, I try to answer three questions. What have you struggled with? What have you learned? And what are you still working on? Take a second there to remember. <laughs> we have a bit of a mission, hopefully, to try to, to shift some of the stigma that still exists around mental health by uh, presenting therapists and therapy in a, a more relatable light. And, uh, and the hope also is that this can become a bit of a, a space where therapists can tell their stories in a meaningful way. And I say in a meaningful way because there's, there's purpose to it. There's, there's a reason why we're doing this. So uh, welcome, welcome to it. We have a great show coming up. Uh, my guest today is Abby Rosen. Now, Abby and I, we um, didn't know each other, but found out that we knew each other if that makes sense. So, th so this goes back to high school. Turns out we were right there the whole time. I think like, like vaguely aware of one another on the periphery, but uh, really had nothing to do with one another. And uh, it was one of these uh, kind of surprise bits of information that you find out down the road. It's like, huh, I thought I was talking to a stranger today. I guess not. Uh, and we had a great talk though. Um, I'm so excited to introduce you to Abby. Abby is the, uh, I should know this. I am prepared. <laughs> Abby is the, the co-owner and the clinical director of the Healing Collective in Toronto. Uh, she has a, a wonderful, thriving private practice, <laughs> take two, specializing uh, in disordered eating, in depression and anxiety, relationship issues, and uh, I encourage anyone that, that may be in the market, uh, check her out online. Uh, she's a wonderful therapist and has wonderful uh, resources and, and posts on her site. You know, I, I actually found myself somehow stumbling upon her website years ago and finding something that she posted to be really helpful, not only uh, with my clients, but for myself too. Uh, so without further ado... I hope you guys have an opportunity, whatever you're doing, to uh, to dig in and get to know Abby. <laughs> All right, we're in. I'm good. Uh -huh. okay. Yes. Yes. This is a good start. It'll be great. <laughs> so, I mean, I was so intrigued by by the whole Thornhill connection. It's so weird. What classes? Like, what was your major? Or not major? I guess. What, 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 but did, were you a science person more, or like a history person more? Neither. Okay, drama. Did you take drama? I took drama only in my last year. I never took it. So. I avoided it 
Like I came into Thornhill in grade 11. So I was there <gasps> okay. 11, 12, and 13. Or... That's why. What do you mean that's why? Well, because I was there from grade nine. So that might be why I, we don't remember each other much. Okay. But I was still there for, like we were there three years that coincided. Yeah. I, I hated it though. You Did you? I hated high school in, in general. Oh. Like just didn't want to be there. Well, I don't know who wants to be there, but... Some people seem like they come away from it and it's like the best time of their life. I think that's problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Because we can't relate to it? No, because if that's the best time of your life, you're always going to be looking back being like, that was the best time of my life. Mm. But I think there's better times to be had in the future. Well, hopefully. I mean, it's kind of Al Bundy-ish, right? <laughs> when the hell was the last time someone used a married with children reference? Uh, I did a few weeks ago in therapy. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I did. We, we must be from the same era. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> it's hard to join a high school halfway through, I think. It is. And when I came in in grade 11, it was like. We were like well formed by then. Yeah. Like our cliques were just like solid. Well, sure. And also, I came in there as, as really just so disconnected from like i was in a bad spot at that time and so like grade 11 year was actually like this pivotal year where i got to the halfway point and things started actually turning around in Mm -hmm. a good way but Mm -hmm. prior to that it was like really dark so i got married a week after i handed in my last paper uh, at UFT, okay. and my husband was living in America. I was going back to high school for a second. No, no, no sorry. After my, last after, ma- no. Uh, after my last master's paper, sure. my husband was living in the states at the time because he's American. And I, I, I think I read a bit about that too. Oh my god, I need to Google myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to move to the states, which I did begrudgingly because I was like, I need to be building my career here. But obviously, we're, we're married, so we're living in Boston. And the first job I got, I commuted about 100 miles a day on my car, which I don't like to commute. Keep in mind, look at my life right now. I worked in my basement and on my block. Right. So in that job, which I loved, and I worked with people on Medicare uh, to do therapy for 30 bucks an hour. Lucky you. In their homes (laughs) while they would chain smoke. Uh, It was really so special to be invited to people, like to be allowed into people's homes, people who wouldn't normally trust. Yeah. White. Middle class therapist, uh, but I would cry. And I have clients where there's things where I'm like, the situation is really dire. And my supervisor just keeps reminding me, you're just there to support. Like, you're just there to be that relationship, that making space for whatever is coming, and you don't need to fix it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. So, because you can't. Is that a tendency sometimes, or or was it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I want to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do. I want to make everything better. Um, so sometimes in my head, above the client's head, I see a sign. Like I visualize a sign that says, don't fix it. Nice. You don't own it. Don't fix it. Uh, don't get sucked into their overwhelm. Um, and also a recent one is you don't have to impress anyone. Mm. Mm-hmm. So those are helpful kind of visual like reminders so i'm like i don't need to impress this person or okay yeah so so i, I want to go personal here for yeah, a second yeah and i want to ask what what in your life have you been trying to fix or were you trying to fix at a time because for me i i didn't often fall into the the fix it trap oh I, I, I was always somebody that i just i want somebody to listen to me god damn it and oh. so i became like 
A podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> huh, let's talk, no. Let's talk about that. No, uh, That too. No, so, so for me, like the validation became paramount. Right. As opposed to putting myself in a position to try to fix. But that is my validation, I think. So here, say, here, say more. Okay, here's my theory. So I did um, an EMDR training recently. Okay. And it was really eye-opening. Um, before I was born, my mother had a baby that uh, died. Okay. And we have emotional and physical memories as early as our third trimester of being a baby. Wow. Yeah. And the first three years, that's why they talk about attachment so much. And so my poor mother, pregnant with me, had the same condition in that pregnancy uh, with me. So anxious, on bed rest. I was born via emergency C-section early. And then she was really anxious when I was a baby. And so I think that made me own other people's emotional experiences that I need to fix it and make everyone happy. And I'm, an, I'm not an only child, but I was raised an only child because I have an old, much older half-sister. Okay. Um, and so I had to fix it, make everything okay, be really self-contained, really perfect, no tantrums, uh, people pleaser. So I think that's it I want to. And that's why I actually prefer individual therapy to group therapy because in a group it's hard to manage everyone's needs. And I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't handle it. Whereas right, right, a one-on-one right. -on -one, I can really feel <clears throat> like I've met your needs and you feel heard and you feel this and you feel that. Right. So what, what, do, you, what, what do you think was some of what drove that as a child? Like was it, was it sensing a piece of chaos that was going on for other people that you wanted to soothe? Or was it something else? As a sensitive kid, um, I guess just being, yeah, really sensing what is going on for other people and really just trying to make sure it's okay, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't remember that my mother's anxiety around it. I know stories about it, but it would line up. Yeah. I don't know. Being an only child and my parents coming as refugees to this country. and Your parents were refugees? They were religious refugees. From Weren't your parents religious? <laughs> Um, Are you not Russian? No. Oh, you weren't. Oh. Was it the slippers that? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The slippers and the tea. <laughs> yeah. So is that where your parents came from? Yeah, they yeah. did. Okay. Um, and I think you know. Oh, I I would add to that that uh, my father was born in 1940, and um, so survived the Holocaust. And when I was six, this isn't great. He took me to the Adult Holocaust Museum. When you were six. Yeah. Yeah, he was trying to do the right thing, but not appropriate. Yeah. And I'm a very visual person, so I can still remember photos from that museum experience. And then so there, I developed a real responsibility to make sure things didn't happen again. Like really real responsibility. So I remember whenever Hotel Rwanda came out, I don't know when that okay. came out. I remember my mother and I went to see it, and it ended, and I looked at her, and I just started wailing and sobbing. And I was an adult, because I was like took full personal responsibility for this genocide. So... <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, it's messed. Oh, man. Uh, now I don't, but <laughs> there's a level of responsibility, I think, mm -hmm. that my parents came here as refugees to give me a better life. I have to do things in a certain way, and I have to manage other people's emotional experiences. And now I'm a therapist. So there's the, that, that generational component, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm sitting with something, and I'm 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 not sure how to put it into words. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I came from a very different family background. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the past year, I've I've really gotten more of a personal sense of not just growing up uh, in the shadows of of the, the 
personal familial experience of the mm -hmm. Holocaust mm -hmm. and how that shapes people's sense of themselves, mm -hmm. but, but also how through good intentions, it can really get exposed to the younger generation in ways that are just too overwhelming to process at that young an age. Right. And so while I, I definitely, I support people knowing about it and, mm -hmm. and but at, at six years old and, and younger than that, it, like I can understand why people then come away from it and say, I don't know how I feel about exposing that to my kids now, because for me, it was such a bad experience. So, yeah, that is, was a huge thing. So for my kids, I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. Right. Um, and so for the nine-year-old, we've talked about, you know, racism against black, indigenous people of color, like, at length, right? Mm -hmm. They know all about that. Uh, it's something that's like a topic of conversation. And because they're white, their privilege is not to have to know about anti-Semitism right away. Uh -huh. So right. I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, they knew about how, what their job was going to be as white men in protecting women and, and people of color and marginalized people, right? Trans folk, whatever. Um, but they didn't need to know about anti-Semitism quite yet. And then this year, so Mike is in grade four, uh, he had to write a paper about someone who was dead and he picked my father. And Day of the Dead. So my kids go to alternative school. So okay. they, <laughs> okay. and I couldn't describe my father properly without explaining anti-Semitism in the Holocaust. Right. So I was like, all right, listen, people don't like Jews. Um, <laughs> I was like, why? And then I told him about the Holocaust and I answered whatever questions he had. Yeah. Uh, and then he, it was cute because he went down like, the, he kind of had an idea of some things because he had read, I guess, a book at school, but um, went down the path of like the Inglorious Bastards fantasy. Yeah, <laughs> This yeah. is what I would do. And, this, and I was like, yeah, 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 that's good. So... Uh, he's nine, and I thought he was ready to know about it. Right. I was ready to talk about it. Right. I was ready to talk about it with him. Sure. But I also wanted him to, like, he went to Hebrew school one year or go to Jewish camp or do something to have more of an identity of Judaism before knowing that he would be discriminated against for it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this, I'm, I'm appreciating the, the incremental exposure here. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm imagining when you're talking about the Holocaust a little bit, it's, it's, it's talking about it in a way it's not showing graphic images. No. And it's, right, it's, no. there's, there's some scaffolding that needs there's to happen. scaffolding, but, you know, I'm a therapist, and I'm trained in children and family, and I have access to the internet, and I've processed my own stuff. My father didn't have that stuff. There was no books. He did get a book when I was a teenager on what to expect every year. <laughs> but he, he did the best he could, I think. Right. But definitely... My parents experienced a lot of anti-Semitism in their lives, so... I can imagine. Yeah. I think my great-grandparents who raised my father, they escaped pogroms, but I don't remember from where. Maybe Ukraine. I don't really know. Mm -hmm. Not wow. much. That's it. That's all I got. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, did that have a bearing on your sense of identity growing up, too? I think it has a bearing on my identity now. Yeah? Like, I think it's it's weird. Yeah. Uh, How so? Well, I would love to go on like Ancestry.com. I'm on 23andMe, but on Ancestry.com and... Me meaning like you've done that? that I've done the DNA oh, test. I'm uh, thinking of doing it. It's interesting. I'm related to 1,200 people all across America, and I think it's all from my father's side. Okay. So I, I'll go on there, and I can barely scrape up more than the birth and death date of my great-grandparents from just my father's maternal grandparents. Okay. 
And then I add my husband on there. He's from Texas. And it populates by like three million, like just generation, 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 photos, photo, like all this documentation. Wow. So it just a, seems like a very different experience. Is your husband Jewish? No. No. Okay. No, no, no. He's from so Texas. So there's, yeah. I, 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 I think of it sometimes as like, you know, the, the branches of, of his family tree are all there. Were not, you know, cut down the same way. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 23 me is interesting, but I'm, I mean, these people are like very distantly related to me. So. Okay. Yeah. By the way, I, I found like you talked a little bit in, in some interview before about how you met your husband. What interview? I don't know now. What? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did meet him. Okay, well, can I just, what stood out to me? <laughs> yeah. You guys met online. By accident in 1998, right. so while I was still in high school, on so, ICQ. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that didn't happen. First of all, like I, I don't remember. Like it wasn't online dating. No, I know, but yeah. but like, did did that have more or less of a stigma than online dating? Oh, it was a huge stigma. Because online dating had this stigma for years and years and years. Only only recently, it's funny, I heard a comedian talk about this, how it, it shifted to the point where it's like, he's trying to explain to his parents that if you meet somebody in person now, oh. you're considered this weirdo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I met him by accident online. I never told my mother for a few years how I met him. I had this whole elaborate lie about how he used to live in Toronto and he, that's how we met. And he was friends with this friend. Oh, God. And um, <laughs> my best friend was like, he's probably a serial killer. She was his best woman at our wedding. But <laughs> uh, yeah, very stigma. Oh, my gosh. Who does that? Yeah. No, freaks. And so is, is, there, is there more of a story there? Uh, we met online. He was like, I said, you're probably a stalker. I'm not going to talk to you. Because there's a random chat on ICQ, which for you young folk, it's an instant messenger. <laughs> One of the first, if not yeah. the first, right? Mm-hmm. It, AOL, ICQ were the first, I think, and then MSN Messenger came around. Right. Um, By the way, do you remember there was a thing like back in the day that people were like selling low ICQ numbers? Because no. by the time I came around and I registered an account, I was something like in the millions or hundreds of thousands of people that had done it. And people were sell- like, I was like one of the first, what's going on? I'm trying to think of what number I was. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> so people that would say, oh, I was in like one of the first 50. Oh. We're yeah. actually like selling people their user numbers. Cool. No, like I that don't was remember a thing. that. No. Uh yeah, no, I don't remember that. So he wanted to talk, and I was like, no, I'm not going to talk to you. Um, and then, and this is the hook, and this is so ugh, telling. He's like, well, eventually, he's like, I'm in love with my best friend. I need someone to talk to about it. And I was like, oh, you need help? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you were a goner at that yeah, point. Yeah, so then I, we, were, we were friends. And then that kind of unfolded in a way not to his, not to his benefit, although I guess ultimately to his benefit. Yeah. And then we were talking on the phone, and then... Well, how else, would it, how else would you envision it unfolding in a way that you felt comfortable enough to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. So we became friends, and then hours on the phone. So right. $1,000 so, phone So did you have to get, like, calling cards and stuff like that? I and, was too lazy. Ah. So we'd spend a lot of money on phone bills. And then uh, he came to visit, and he, we decided he would move here. And so we did. Oh, my goodness. And here we are. Tell me a little bit about isolation. Okay. But did, did isolation factor into your experience of growing up? 
Um, I, yeah, growing up an only child, I value now as an adult my alone time, which I don't really get. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and so I think I realized quite late in life that I was an introvert in extrovert clothing. And so isolation for me is like my downtime just to be alone and to do what I want. Okay. I'm very extroverted, but I need the introvert time to to balance it off. Right, okay. But for me, it was comfortable. I like, I really do like to be alone and I don't like to um, always share my space. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when we had one kid, we could just pass him off back and forth and have that alone time. Then we had two and I was like, I'm never going to be alone again. Uh, and I lived in Tokyo by myself and I liked, I loved that isolation because you're in a very crammed, busy city. Uh-huh. But you're still alone. Yeah. Which I really loved, actually. Like, what a cool experience. You loved that? I loved it. I, I don't know. Did you read Catcher in the Rye in grade 11? I know, but everyone, you're, so many people tell me about this book. I should, I should definitely read it. Because I think we were supposed to. I, I never got, I was never assigned Catcher okay, in the Rye. Okay, okay. I was assigned it. Mm-hmm. And of course, at that time, I wasn't doing any of the work I was assigned. Because mm-hmm. I just said, well. No. No. Yeah. <laughs> And then I found out more things about it, and I mm-hmm. thought, oh, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. But when you when you talked about being in Tokyo in this mm-hmm. big city full mm-hmm. of people and mm-hmm. being so isolated, to me that that paints a very like dreary picture. And I know you're not experiencing it yeah, that yeah, way, yeah. but it reminds me of of the character from this book. What's, what's Hol- his name? Holden. Holden Caulfield. Yes, I've heard of this. Just kind of wandering around the city and feeling just kind of so alone. Oh, I don't. I love it. It's so peaceful for me. Like, I love to go on vacation alone. But the problem, I went on vacation alone once, really, that I can remember after that. After I was married, I was like, I just need to get away. Mm-hmm. I was really stressed out. So we, I went by myself to Cuba. But because of my nature, people were still talking to me. And I learned about this person and her messy marriage and this person's divorce sure. all this stuff. So I like both. I like to have the option to be alone. Um, so isolation doesn't bother me. Like, we have therapists that join our group practice because they don't can't tolerate the isolation. Yeah. And for me I don't mind it. And I guess I'm I'm thinking more of like an existential isolation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I, I also like for me, I love those times too. Right. Like when people go to bed. Yeah. Oh. I, I mean I used to be up till like three, four in the morning that just is because my natural. that time I I cherished that time. Yes, that yeah. is me. I just okay. don't it's not responsible, but that is me. Yeah. yeah. If I can. If I could get away with it, I'd be up until three or four every night. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And so like me, would you be appreciating like for instance how quiet the streets are and appreciating just how things are peaceful? Um I just like to be able to do what I'm doing without being bothered <laughs> or interrupted or feeling guilty that I'm not doing something I should be doing at that time. Because okay. I should be sleeping. That's just, like rather than should be doing the dishes or right. making dinner or interacting with my children. So I'm glad you brought the, the shoulds. Up. Yes, yes, lots of shoulds. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's one of those words. Yes. And, and you've talked about that a little bit, unless yes. you were writing from someone else's experience again. No, nope, no, nope. <laughs> should. That was a blog post of mine quite a few mm-hmm. years ago. This is just kind of more of a segue into talking about language. Okay, yes, yeah. What do you have there for language? Well, language, I, I'm curious to know about the importance of language to you. Because for me, like, I, I really resonated with narrative therapy, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it was so heavily focused on language. Mm-hmm. But language for me became so important growing up. Mm-hmm. 
it, it actually made me think of a story growing up when, when I was a teenager. And I would have these kind of conflictual moments with my mom. Mm -hmm. And there'd be like moments of just, for me anyways, just emotional intensity and just mm -hmm. very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And as I would try to put into words to convey how I was feeling, mm -hmm. by the way, my mom is amazing. Mm -hmm. I love her so much. But in some of these moments, she would respond to it by taking one of the words and saying, well, you're not really using that word right. <laughs> and instead of like, instead of focusing on what I'm saying, yeah. would sort of correct one of the words. Yeah, I'm with a couple who has this problem. And right then now. it would become about that. Yeah, yeah, people do that. So I would go away feeling like, oh, fuck, well, clearly... I didn't do that right then. Right. And I need to get this more precise and oh, more accurate. Oh, that's not me at all. So, yeah. so, so where, where does the importance of language come in for you? Um, so I'm not good at always saying what I'm trying to say on the fly, right? I read these self-help books and I'm like, oh, I wish I could say it this way. It's so concise and it's everything I'm feeling, but I couldn't put it into words in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so language isn't that important. I think it's... Maybe can, I'm wrong. Can I just recap for yes. a second? <laughs> no. Everything that I've like, I've, I've, I thought I came to like <laughs> start to understand about you. So language, oh, no. is not that important. Isolation, bring it on. I love it. So, this is no. the story so far. Sorry. <laughs> okay. It's not your language fault. Language is important. Language is important. Um, no, no, but clearly this is. I, no, I, I want to get it at. at, at the real, like the genuine part of you. So you don't have to like, you know, make something up. I think where my interest in language lies, now that I'm thinking of what you've been reading, is what the power language holds, right? And how that impacts well, yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's that blog post of like the five words I hate and one of them is lazy. Yes. Just, just do this or you're lazy or effort. I, I think effort, I really, or potential, I hate that word. Um, because of everything that it means, you know, like it, there's no such thing as lazy, I don't believe. There's a bunch of other things that are related. Or potential just makes you feel like you're never going to... You should always do your best. Right. In a different way than like we are always, We are all always doing our best. Absolutely. It just means... Yeah. So there's a lot of weight to language that I don't like. But So do you have a, a story from your personal experience that uh, exemplifies why some of those things resonate with you? <laughs> sure. So... Uh... Well, what was that? What was that look? <laughs> I'm just laughing at like, sure, let's get into it. Because um, I got a story too. No. Well, yeah. I think growing up, uh, bless my parents, who I do love very much, but and I feel like I think about this with my own child, I don't say it, but you're not living up to your potential, you're lazy, you don't want to put effort into anything. If it's hard, you pull out. And so those things do... Like you got some of those messages? I was told those things. Okay. So those things rattle around in my brain and they're not true. Uh, so it's really, it's, it's, you know, it's a core belief of mine, really, uh, that I don't do these things. Um, but they're not true, but they'll still niggle away sometimes, yeah. right? So <laughs> really, yeah, so that, yeah, that kind of stuff. Because I had, as a girl, was undiagnosed with ADHD. Nobody noticed mm -hmm. uh, until I had my first child when I'm the one who was like, do I have ADHD? Uh... So, yeah, but I see it, like, you don't think before you act, like that kind of stuff. So that stuff, yeah, it carries with you. And I think for everybody, things they're told when they're younger, it carries forward for them. Okay. So do you think your parents, in a way, were responding to the ADHD a bit? Yeah. Uh -huh. And just, this is how it came out? Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I think those things sometimes about my kid. <laughs> Don't say them. Right. I'm sure I say other things to mess it all, mess but, them up. Like you're not applying yourself? Or no, I would never say you that. You have potential here? I would never say that. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. And I think it impacts how I think about things like... I have friends and they were like, our kid doesn't do his best at everything. <laughs> and I was like, why would anyone do their best at everything? at everything? That's a terrible use of resource. He should just do his best at the things he wants to do, apply himself at, not everything. And they were like, well, we did our best at everything. And I was like, that's a whole other kettle of fish. That's not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your kid's not lazy. He's just selectively choosing what to work on. Sounds like a good skill, actually. Yeah, it's an excellent skill. <laughs> You ever read that book, the, uh, the Art of Giving a Fuck? Or the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I love that book. I've read part of it. Would you recommend reading the whole thing? I never finish the books that I start, like the nonfiction. I read most of it. I really liked it. Yeah. I think it's CBT in an accessible way. Uh, I found it very helpful mm-hmm. for me to be like, I'm not special. Give less fucks. Sounds good to me. What, what, what's the part where they say about you're not special? What does that mean? Just that if you're... Anxious, for example. Um, oh, like what you said about high school. I was the only, you're not the one. only one. Yeah. I was like, okay. you're not special. Like you're, you think not everyone went through that. We all did. And so when you can remove that, or um, for me also the idea that like I need to be the best, I need to be the most successful. And I look at other people who might be more successful and and think, oh, but I'm not. I'm not doing what they're doing. And then I think, if I'm not special, then I don't need to be doing what they're doing. And their experience is totally different. And I'm good right here. Um, my great therapist, my terrible therapist. I'm. I have a teacher that says world's okayest therapist. That's fantastic. I know it's pretty good because uh, I'm not special. We're, none of us. We're just doing what we can do. <laughs> and if I'm special, that means I have to think of myself differently than I think of everyone else. So, mm-hmm. that's kind of blowing my mind. Sorry. In a good way. In a good way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a big release. Like I think there's a lot of freedom in it. You know, early on, I used to um. Love my job, hate my job, love my job, hate my job. And my supervisor said, why don't you keep track of what that's about? And working with eating disorders where there's not always a lot of movement or years of no no movement for some of my clients, if people are doing well mm-hmm. and they seem to be making connections in session, I was like, I love it. Right. And right. if they weren't doing well, which lots of people are allowed to not do well, I hated it. Uh, and so I was taking my own meaning and identity from... It's like codependence, I guess. <laughs> Which I think happens to a lot of therapists. So when I stopped, yeah, I was free. And so my supervisor will say, oh, you did such great work. And I'm like, I was just there with them, co-traveling along their journey. Um, but it wasn't me that did it. Right. I, I can understand. I can appreciate, I think, now from a new perspective, why it's not, it's, and it's not even a humble thing, oh. why we resist taking some of that credit. Because yeah. in a way... It, it must go back to our own need to resist fueling our own identity too much by the success or failure of what's going on. Which I definitely did, as I think a lot of people do. And I don't want to live like that. So as a parent, Mm -hmm. I want to touch on this very briefly. Mm -hmm. As a parent who also has what sounds like a a very busy and fulfilling career, Mm -hmm. Did you ever fall kind of into the trap of this idea that you're supposed to be able to manage it all? Oh, my God. Sure. Yeah. Which part? Manage which part all? Like, just everything. Like, your life. Uh, because yes I think and I, no. Yeah. 
So yes, and I still think I should be able to manage it all. But when I was 31, so Micah was a year and I was working at George Brown and I was struggling quite a lot. And we went to couples therapy, we were struggling and I got diagnosed with ADHD. That segued I know I keep talking about this diagnosis, and I'm sorry if it's annoying. No, no, no. I, I, it kind of reminds me I want to hear more about oh, yeah. it, actually. Well, I'm telling you all about it right now. But what it Give did it was gave me so much self-compassion. So I'd been working on self-compassion, and when you're teaching it with clients and talking about it, eventually you have to start taking it on. Um, It'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, it would be, right? Yeah. Didn't come right away. And so my husband read books on ADHD and he had more compassion for what was happening in my brain and understanding. And I did too. And it made, it allowed me to be like, here's how my brain works. Here's what I'm super good at. A lot of things. Here's what I super suck at. And other people are going to do the things I suck at because I can't do it all. Okay. There's no shame. And so, you know, having a cleaner come every week, we're lucky we can afford that. And I, Right. need her <laughs> um you know sometimes sending the laundry out which is a big shame thing for me like that's really oh, saying it struggles because i should be able to do that um but i can't do it all and that's okay and i need yeah. to be compassionate with myself around it um because some i can do some things really good that people who can do it all air quotes can't do well, who can like no one can do it all though it's a persona. i don't know where this, where this fallacy comes from i know well, I think it, it comes from the culture of scarcity, right? Where we're comparing ourselves to other people more. We're less connected to them. We just see their highlighted lives. And I remember, you know, going on vacation and people saying, wow, that looked amazing. And I was like, it was terrible. Right. <laughs> but it, we, we have these carefully, carefully curated lives and we're disconnected more from people. So it looks like people are doing better than they are across the board. Yeah. It's so insidious. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to self-care now, mm-hmm. for some people, the idea of, of actually taking care of yourself doesn't happen until they get sick. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, when they get sick, it's almost like it's a time they look forward to. Because, so many parents are like that. Yeah? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how do you prioritize it? Because I mean, I, I get it like that, that there's a time to just kind of hunker down and focus on yourself. But then mm-hmm. it's like, as soon as we're better, there's something inherently wrong with the system. If we go right back into the grind of what wore us down in the first place. Yeah. So I work hard on it and I think it's a very hard thing for me to really embrace. Um, so a couple of years ago, so a few years ago, I was seeing sometimes 10 people in a day in my practice. I know. Don't tell anyone. I won't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> terrible self-care, right? I, I couldn't do that now. And then uh, my husband changed jobs so he could no longer take the kids to school in the morning. And then I was like, I'm going to prioritize myself a little bit and start going to the gym and just doing things for my own health. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to prioritize. You're right. I had to recently feel really sick to really start prioritizing myself. You're right. Yeah. Uh, so just, it dep- there's so many different aspects of self-care, right? If it's just making space to be alone until 3 a.m., which is not great self-care, but in some ways you're like, oh, but I need that. That's easier for me to do than be like, I need to feed myself a nutritious meal. I need to make time for exercise. I need to 
do my laundry. I think those things are all, you know, the boring acts of self-care. I need to refill my prescription. I need to go to the dentist. Uh, just having that compassion, I think, lets it happen more. But it's so easy to get sucked into not caring about yourself and being a martyr, especially as a therapist. Well, as a therapist mom, too, I would yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, and saying no, Yeah. right, uh, which is something I'm working on. Like, no. that And, and lately my mantra it sounds so cold. So it was my personal not mantra, not my therapist mantra, is it's not my problem. <laughs> Good mantra for your personal Yes, life. I'm constantly yeah. saying to my mother, that's not my problem. That's just not my problem. Like, sorry for that person, but I'm not taking it on. Um, so, yeah, self-care. I You know, there's lots of things I should be doing that I'm not. But I'm trying. Right. Mm-hmm. And well, letting other people take care of us, I think, is part of self-care. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, and saying that's not my problem, because otherwise we would take on every problem I as our problem. Take on, I have taken on every problem to a fault, so trying not to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when, when we don't do it right, mm-hmm. either when we say, oh, shit, I did it again, I took on another person's problem, or when we say, I'm not going to, but then there's still that voice that says, well... That was rude of me, or maybe mm-hmm. I should. To me, th- this is where shame comes in, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know for you. Like, I I really enjoyed thinking about things in an externalized kind of persona way. Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you talked about it too—that voice of shame mm-hmm. or the voice of anxiety. What What would you say is the typical story or the dialogue <clears throat> that you have with when it comes to shame trying to pop up in your life? Mm, like one of my big shame, that shame sentence or. Well, yeah. Like if, if the two of you had a bit of a back and forth conversation, Ugh. how would that go? Uh, currently, yeah, <laughs> the something. shame flavor is you didn't prioritize the people that were most important would be you the can... shame flavor. Uh, well, that's so... a good one to just get right in there. <sighs> yeah. 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 Uh, so that's the shame flavor. And, um, yeah, so <laughs> and, and then does it try to go even further to say, well, you've always done this or uh, like you don't have good boundaries, you take other people's problems on as your own. Stuff like that. Why do you do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, the shame, I think that and then there are also shame around parenting, right? Right. For right. women, we're shamed about our appearance and parenting and whether you are a mother or not a mother and how you are a mother. Um, so there's shame about parenting too, like how am I messing it up? And yeah. if everyone only knew how bad of a mother I was, terrible wife I am. And so how do you push back when that comes up? I kind of, I think like, okay, thanks. Thanks for giving me your opinion and then move along. Uh, I think with self-compassion and, and not that I practice meditation, although I would like to be that person one day, but kind of looking at it mindfully and, and also... If I'm really down a shame spiral, or um, I have lots of words for shame. I like it. Shame spiral, shame soup, shame sh- shame shitstorm. Um, if I I don't go down too far because I've been there, and so to me it's a sign of burnout or taught being tired or stressed. And so if I'm really feeling yucky, I have to take a step and be like, what's happening in my life that's making me feel yucky? So in that sense. Is shame a little bit like a warning system yeah. to say you need to it's a thermometer. look at what's going on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then also if I feel really ashamed about something, I should tell my supervisor. <laughs> that's my other one. If I don't want to talk about it, therapy or supervision, I should probably Then that's talk telling? About it. Then I should talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. No one wants to, but <laughs> it's better, right? You shame is just like, it, it, uh, 
it, it thrives in the darkness. And so you mm-hmm. just need to go under the house and get a flashlight and shine it on the shame and be like, fuck you. Absolutely. I see you. Yeah. You're, it's fine. Not a big deal. Yeah. All of a sudden there's no more or less power. It, in yeah. It, right? You have to take away the power. So this, this goes back to um, what, what we were talking about around language and about how these things kind of get taken up. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of this when I talked about pushing back against the shame. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, it's the language that I think comes up quite often for therapists. Mm-hmm. And it's something I try, to, I try to steer clear of mm-hmm. and still find myself coming back to it at times. Okay. And that is the language of aggression when it comes to talking about problems. The language of aggression. Okay, tell so me for, more. So for example, mm-hmm. we say things like the war on cancer. Right. And battling disordered eating mm. and struggling with depression. Mm-hmm. And so these are all very kind mm-hmm. of combative, mm-hmm. aggressive kind of ways mm-hmm. to talk about it. And I fall right into it very easily. And yet there's a part of me that says, there's got to be another way to talk about it. Because when we right. talk about it that way, we're really, in a way, rejecting a part of ourself right. or coming into conflict with a part of ourself mm-hmm. that just like shame could be an opportunity to learn something totally. or could be a barometer. Totally. Um, Good segue back to language. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Well done. Thank you. Um, special. Special. <laughs> so, uh, yes, huge. Mm-hmm. So here's my personal example because I know yeah. you like the personal example. I like it. Um, my second child would not nap or go to sleep. And eventually I used to call it like the battle of sleep. Right. And my friend said, what would happen if you didn't call it a battle? And she was so, she was right. And I normally didn't. I was like, acceptance. This is what it is. This is what it takes. This is temporary. This is right now. Yes, I'm going to sing 90 songs to him for two hours. <laughs> I did. I used to like Ooh. pull the lyrics up on my iPhone and sing like Lisa Loeb. It was fun, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but just accept that this is what it is. And I'm not going to do, once I could accept it for what it was, rarely did I really struggle. And, you know, sometimes once we had a friend over, I never saw him. <laughs> Because I was busy trying to put the baby to bed right. for two hours, right, right, right. and that irritated me. Uh, but that language, and so we, right when my clients are like, um, "I'm battling shame," let's say, or "I'm battling disordered eating," I'd like to be say, "Well, let's stop for a minute and say thank you, disordered eating, because some it's been very protective, and it's it's like let's see what it's done for you because you're no dummy, and there's a reason you're doing this, and mm-hmm. it's a really cool." defense mechanism and i use the parka analogy do you know the no it's what's a that? fun one i say um so suppose you're raised in north pole you need a super good parka excellent really keeps you warm it saves it literally saves your life sure but then you move to cuba and you still have the parka on because you needed it your whole life mm-hmm. and everyone's like you can take off the parka and you're like no i need this to be alive because you don't know any difference and slowly you can maybe put an arm out or, or take it off, but you need to have that parka with you until you realize you don't need it to live anymore. But thank you, parka. You're mm-hmm. not working for me now. Right. You're kind of making me sweaty. <laughs> Heat exhaustion. Parka, yeah. yeah. But think, oh my goodness, how amazing, you know, that you saved me all those years. That's from Gabor Mate, not an Abbey original, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, trying to look at the things we're struggling with to be like, what's the what role does it play? Thank you, right. defensiveness. Thank you, fear of whatever. 
Yeah, I, and I try to remind myself to look at that and, mm-hmm. and also to get people thinking about that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had this horrible medical crisis four years ago, and yet I can tell people in a second what was so wonderful about it. Mm-hmm. 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 And so I, I know there's, there's, there's never just bad without some good. Yeah. yeah. So, so when we use that language... Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it, it's so easy to get taken up, especially with kids, because they, or with boys anyways, mm. are really into that mentality of like, we're going to duel and we're going to battle and we're going to face off and we're going to square off and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Mm-hmm. And every time I find myself coming to a place of saying we're battling or we're struggling mm-hmm. with depression, or mm-hmm. I try to remind myself, just say we're experiencing it. Yeah. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm in this moment of like, do we like wrap up now? I don't know. <laughs> this was really cool, by it the way. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Good Perfect. to see you. Thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. It's an honor. I'm we, special now. We're <laughs> on that note. <laughs> Bye. Clearly, we had a lot of fun there. And uh, it was a lot of fun just not really knowing where the conversation was going to go at some points, but, but pulling it all together in a way that was really enjoyable. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Abby Rosen. You can find out uh, more information about Abby. You can contact her online uh, at the uh, Healing Collective, which is uh, healingcollective.ca, her private practice, abbyrosen.com. And... Um, this would be a great investment in your well-being. And, and right, there's like that ripple effect, right? So if you're doing better, others around you are, are likely going to be affected by that too. <laughs> I was tempted to say, you're doing better, other people are going to like you more. I have to scratch that though. <laughs> um, please, uh, all the support... Uh, you can give to this show is so appreciated especially at this time when we're trying to grow our listener base and spread the gospel so if you want to give back to the show you can do that by uh, sharing any of the content sharing this episode or heading over to apple podcast and giving us a five-star rating or leaving us a review Um, all that stuff i I think it kind of helps uh probably Apple's algorithms to be like, oh, maybe this is a show more people should know about. I don't know. Do I really even know that? I don't know. If you want to uh, contact me, you're welcome to do so as well. I'm taking new referrals. Uh, IntuneCounseling.com is the place to be. And uh, also, if you're a therapist and you have some interest in telling your story and being part of this journey, being part of this, this collective here on the show... Um, I can't really tell you when I'm going to start uh, scheduling new interviews again. But uh, if you're interested anyways, drop me a line and and we can at least start chatting about that. Okay. Um, My love to everybody out there. Hope everyone is doing well and uh, looking forward to seeing you back very soon. Bye for now. (music) 